Good morning, everyone. Good morning. What an amazing morning. How many of us drove to church this morning looking at that sun just thinking, oh man, what a day. Have it, has, it, has this week just been perfect weather or what? It's been awesome. Oh yeah. So... This week and next week, I'm not going to do any motorcycle riding because, you know, it's kind of a busy week for a pastor. <laughs> but uh, hopefully this weather sticks around because I can't, I can't wait. We're going to be in Matthew chapter today, uh, Matthew chapter 21 today, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so if you'll turn there to Matthew 21, uh, you will, uh, you'll notice that we're not in Luke, even though we're in a series in Luke. This week and next week, we're going to take a slight detour um, and go into a couple other Gospels. And that's because in our series in Luke, we're not quite towards Palm Sunday or towards the uh, resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We're not there yet. So I thought instead of jumping ahead in Luke, going back and then coming to that point, we would look at the other Gospels as they... Uh, articulate some of the same events that took place. And so we'll be in Matthew 21. We'll start in verse 1. If you'll turn with me there, and I will read, and then we will pray. It says, Now they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and Bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. <clears throat> this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They, bought a, uh, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Our merciful God, we thank you for giving us this astoundingly beautiful Sunday morning to be reminded of your imminent return and to prepare our hearts for it as a worshiping community. We offer our hearts and loyalty to you that we may be cleansed by the washing of your word and sanctified to be like you, uh, Lord, the one who the one in whose image we were created. Teach us, Lord, to honor you rightly. Lord, cause us to receive and revere the scriptures with holy submission and obedience this morning. Cause us to treat Jesus now as we ought to when he appears visibly to us. 
We give this time over to you and to your word in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Have you ever noticed the excitement that a dog has when its owner comes home? Right? It's like it wags its tail. Sometimes its whole butt is shaking. It jumps. It squeals. Tries to lick you in the mouth. Right? Sometimes it has a little accident on the floor. We call those outdoor doggies. Uh, some of you might remember when we first moved up here, we had this little dog-like goblin uh, named Luigi, and unfortunately he passed a few months after we moved up here, but when we lived in New York, we would often have to be gone all day uh, to go to Costco or to run other errands in either Rochester or Buffalo, because we lived kind of out in the middle of Amish farm country, nowhere. And so as we would pull out of the driveway, we would see Luigi sitting on the back of the couch, pe peering out the window, just staring at us uh, and, and, and watching us leave him. And he would look longingly, and then sometimes we would come back as much as 12 hours later, and no joke, the dog was still sitting there awaiting our return when we would walk in the door, that 14-year-old dog was like a puppy. He was so excited to see us, his whole body shaking. A cat would never do that. Like, cats greet you on their terms. They're nothing like what Jesus wants us to be like towards him. Jesus is coming back. Be like a dog, right? Even, even when a dog licks you, it's like, it's kind of gross, but it's kind of sweet at the same time. Have you ever been licked by a cat? It, that tongue slash cactus thing yanking on your skin hair. Dogs are faithful, right? Be like a dog. This morning, we're going to see Jesus ride into Jerusalem before he goes to the cross for our sins. And, and the people parade him into town like a king. And I think there's some intentional shadows of what is to come. Jesus died, he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven, and we await his return. And the question I want each of us to ask today is if we await Jesus more like a dog, like our Luigi, just longingly waiting, or more like a cat. Now, if you're a cat person, I, I get it, they're more complex, okay? That's fine, I have no intent of offending the cat people, but... Jesus isn't looking for your complexity. He's looking for your loyalty, right? So, so I want us to think like dogs, right, um, in a good way. Uh, I know that sounds bad, doesn't it? But we'll get there. Be because we're taking a break from our series in Luke, um, I, I need to set up the context here. If you recall, Luke was written by a non-Jew to a non-Jew, in contrast, we're at today, Matthew is considered the Jewish gospel. It's written by a Jew to a Jewish audience. And that's going to affect uh, what content would be necessary and how it's presented by Matthew. <clears throat> it's also going to affect how we read it. Because when we read a text of the Bible, the first thing we want to do is understand what the author was saying to the original audience and how they would have understood it. When we do that, we're able to most rightly apply it to our own context, right? Now, that's not to say that God isn't working to speak to you when you just read the Bible devotionally without the burden of deep, deeper study. He certainly can reach us very deeply there. But if we do neglect the original meaning of God's word, we often miss out on getting to know God and his character even more intimately. 
you met my dear friend and mentor, Justin Alfred, uh, in the fall when I was horribly sick with COVID. He came to speak a couple of times. And one of the phrases uh, that he said throughout the years that's always stuck with me is, there is nothing spiritual about being ignorant. The gospel according to Matthew is written by Matthew. He's also known as Eva, uh, Levi. He was a repentant tax collector. Uh, we read about him last week in Luke when Jesus called him and the Pharisees got upset that this great rabbi Jesus would hang, out, hang around such people. And then the gospel according to Matthew is, is filled also with imagery that would much, be much more clear to a Jewish audience and it tends to emphasize the otherworldly aspects of heaven. Um, he also, uh, Matthew also makes a lot of appeal to prophecy. Uh, and then one of the primary recurring themes in Matthew is the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. So today's passage follows a time where Jesus and his disciples had been in Jericho uh, and teaching and healing people along their, their travels. And along with the mass of people that are coming from the region of Galilee in the north, they were heading to Jerusalem for Passover. And we're going to see in our passage today that there's, there's a picture of royalty that's taking shape as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. Now let me take you to Matthew 21, and let's just read the first part of verse 1 here. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, which would have been quite a hike. It was kind of like the terrain that your grandparents had to walk to school in. You remember hearing the stories, right? They had to walk uphill both ways, three feet of snow. They shared one pair of shoes between three siblings, right? Except Jesus, they had, in his crew, they had a little easier. They didn't probably have snow. Um, but today, they've cut through some of that terrain with highways, Back then, you can see it was quite a journey if you look at the terrain. The Mediterranean climate is not that different than what we have here in Southern California. You can see it's kind of like our own high desert area. And as they head through the Mount of Olives, they come upon Bethphage. And the picture uh, shows modern roots here, this, this map, but it just kind of gives you an idea there of, of where they were going. Certainly not a straight line. We aren't certain of the location of ancient Bethphage, but it's likely very near or within modern-day Bethphage. And you can see that the Mount of Olives, as you get into there, is a very mountainous area on the east side of Jerusalem. Today, this is where we start. Jesus and his disciples arrive in Beth Bethphage, which means house of figs. have no idea what significance that holds, but that's what it means. And Jesus gives some instructions. So let's, let's look back at verse 1 again. It says he, that they draw near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, Jesus is operating in community here. He wasn't a loner. He wasn't a quiet ascetic. He didn't spend all of his time secluded in the wilderness. He spent a lot of time in more urban areas and was almost always with his close friends and followers the disciples, and, and they did things together as a team. 
the Old Testament, God often had prophets perform peculiar tasks in order to demonstrate a point that he was communicating. For example, he had Hosea, the prophet Hosea, marry and be faithful to the prostitute Gomer in order to demonstrate his faithfulness to Israel, which was not so faithful to him at the time. And we, of course, can apply that message to his love for the church today that even when we are not faithful, he is faithful. Right here, he's utilizing the disciples to demonstrate his kingship. And I I think there's some hints of an eschatological theme in the message here too. That, that means that there may be a foreshadowing of something related to the end times or the end of days. There are a surprising number of similarities between the first and second coming of Christ. In this case, there are some similarities between this account and the account in Revelation where there are, there are two witnesses and then two olive trees and then two lampstands. And in this case, the witnesses are killed in the street. They come back to life. And then a voice from heaven calls them, which they follow, and their enemies are witness to it as they go up into the clouds. Well, let's go ahead and read that. We don't want to make too much of this, but it's it's good to note. Revelation 11, 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, speaking of the uh, the slain witnesses. And they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is something that happens in the future. And I think that there are certainly some similarities here to how Jerusalem witnesses Jesus coming in with his disciples. I don't think we want to make too much of a doctrine out of that or anything. But I think that the similarity and the imagery is pretty striking. I'm not even certain what, if anything, to make of it. But I think it's interesting. Keep in mind that Revelation is marked by imagery. And Matthew also highlights a lot of imagery. So, uh, verse 2, Matthew 21, verse 2 and 3, he had taken the two, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This is what Jesus instructs the two disciples to do. And it's, it's a very peculiar request. And if you read it in a vacuum without knowing the story behind it, you just pick up your Bible and this is what you read for the first time. It's actually kind of humorous. It's a pretty funny story in a lot of ways. They'd been hoofing it a long way. Why did he suddenly need a donkey? How did he know where he was going to find or where his disciples would find a donkey? They did life together, so it seems odd that they wouldn't know if he had previously arranged something with the owner of some animals. Perhaps he sovereignly knew this as he, uh, in his humanity, relied upon the Father and the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind that the cult is what is important here. The other Gospels don't mention the cult's mother, but they also don't preclude her. The baby donkey is probably going to be with its mother one way or the other. And so that wouldn't be a problem unless the other 
Gospels, uh, the other gospel writers said that the mama donkey wasn't there, which they don't say. And so Jesus tells them to go ahead of him. He tells them what they're going to find when they go ahead. And then they're, they're to take the donkey that they find, which seems odd. I think it may be a summary. Maybe he explained this in a little more detail to them at, at the time. But can you imagine this, just sending one, sending someone to go take a car that isn't theirs? Like, you know, okay, so go down the road and find a car that isn't locked. And then hotwire it and bring it to me. <laughs> like, when you put it that way, it almost sounds like Jesus is asking the disciples to commit grand theft donkey. It's weird, right? But it happened. I had some friends that went to a Bible college, and one of the students that did not own a car would frequently go around telling other students that did own cars that the Lord had need of their car. And without exception, every student that he petitioned said, I'm not hearing that same message from God. Um, you, then he would scold them for their lack of faith. So that, that's a whole different kind of carjacking, right? Obviously, this here, our account, is a divinely inspired plan. And the disciples weren't going to be, you know, arrested for donkey jacking or anything like that. In, in the event that they were confronted by anyone while they were snatching donkeys, he told them what to say and how it would be received. And so let's continue here in verse 4, Matthew 21, 4. And this is important. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, we see most of the prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus are generally kind of more circumstantial. They can't really be manufactured. He didn't have to force it. For example, his virgin birth in Bethlehem. It's not like Mary and Joseph conspired to manufacture that their Nazarene son would be born in Bethlehem and that they somehow convinced him to continue the facade for 33 years and then die for a lie. Like, that's just off the table. It didn't happen. There's no possibility of that having happened. And, and name anyone else who could predict their own death, burial, and resurrection and then pull it off. You're, you're not going to find that, right? If I told you that, the one thing that you would be sure of is when I died, I wasn't going to come back to life. But here Jesus intentionally creates the circumstances by which Zechariah 9.9 would be fulfilled. This is what it says in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Now there's, there's no question what Jesus is communicating here. He's saying, I am your coming king. D.A. Carson said, the ride on a colt because it was planned could only be an acted parable, a deliberate act of symbolic self-disclosure. And so here's where I think some of the real imagery is for us. Let's look at Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, 
a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head, on his head are many diadems. And he has the name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which to from, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think that Jesus fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 is a good picture of his second coming. He's called the King of Kings. And there's both contrast and comparison in those two, but here's another interesting piece of that. Remember after his resurrection, he stuck around for 40 days, walked with the disciples and, and all of that before he was taken up into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 says, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, the, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee! Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he's coming back the same way that he left. And what we're seeing today is not just a cute little contrived fulfillment of prophecy that we celebrate by waving palm branches around. Jesus is demonstrating his eternal kingship. This time, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, a symbol of peace. And he will not long from now then rise into the clouds. But when he comes back, he will come back on a horse, which is a symbol of war. Maybe a white Mustang. I'm guessing a Shelby. Because that's what I would drive if I owned the cattle on a thousand hills. And he has a flamethrower. Listen, it's imagery, right? And that's the way I like to imagine it. Um, no. Uh, he, he will come on a, a white horse, right? J. Vernon McGee said, The conclusion to be drawn from these portions is that at his second coming there will be a true triumphal entry. But notice also that he is putting his eternal kingship on display. He does this with humility, though. I think a better translation is meekness. He has all power and authority. He's affirming publicly his power and authority, his kingship, but he's not flaunting his power and authority. In fact, by the end of the week, we will have him humbly submitting and suffering the most shameful execution that one could experience. Christianity 
is the only faith system that has the humiliation of its God as a central feature. With that in mind, I, I want to look at the rest of our passage and consider how we should prepare for his coming and how we should be ready to respond when he does. Matthew 21, if you go back there, keep your finger there, we'll be there for a bit. Matthew 21, verse 6, the disciples went out as Jesus had directed him. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. We move now to the response portion of this text. We start with the disciples. How did the, how did the disciples respond? They obeyed and honored him immediately, right? They, they did as they were told. Jesus goes and tells them to, ja to, 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 to steal a donkey, basically. Take a donkey. Of course, they weren't stealing, but he tells them to go take a donkey, and, and they obey. And then we read things like, love your enemy, and we're like, no, that's too far, right? It can't do that one. Or, or like, take up your cross and follow me. Okay, let's be realistic here, right? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What log? You know, what, right? What brother? If you lust, you've committed adultery. Come on now. Who does he think he is? Everybody does that. You're the salt of the earth. Can I be the hot sauce of the earth? You know, or bacon? I'll be the bacon of the earth. Okay, Jesus? I had to bring that in. Wayne brought bacon up, so, you know. Jesus is like, no, be salt. The salt is what improves the pork belly, Right? You be what improves the earth. Don't, don't be the bacon slash earth. Be what Jesus uses to cure the earth with. That Jesus wants to use us. Right? But let's, let's be honest. We don't always like obeying Jesus. And, and we don't like to be honest about that. Most of us rarely like submitting to our king's authority. These guys jacked a donkey for Jesus. They, they didn't even ask what they were going to get out of it. How many of us come into church, and I, I confess, I am so guilty of this, and it's like, I come and I'm looking for what God is going to do for me. And I fellowship, and I pray, and I sing worship songs, expecting God to do something for me. They didn't ask what they were going to get out of it. They didn't stop with obedience either. And I think that's, that's what some of us miss because we don't understand authority very well in our Western culture. The disciples didn't obey because they choose to do something great. That's not why they were obeying. The, the, the disciples obeyed because they recognized who Jesus was and they honored him. They recognized who he was and they gave him the honor of a king. <coughs> Which, by the way, would have upset the Romans if, you didn't catch that. They, they made a saddle of their cloaks on this donkey. In our culture, what happens when we run across a very rich or powerful leader? Somebody's got power and money. You're going to buy dinner, right? Like, right? You're paying, right? We have no concept of what it means to honor authority. I worked many years ago for the Home Depot, and there was a number of letters written to the corporate offices in Atlanta for customers that I had worked with. And I, as a result, I, along with 10 other associates from around Southern California, were invited to a special dinner by Frank Blake, who was the CEO at the time. CEO of the Home Depot. And 
I at least had enough respect to put on a suit and tie. It's the best I knew how to do. There was one girl who showed up late, and she was dressed like she was getting ready to mow the lawn. I was like, you know who you're meeting here? But it occurred to me that, I, and I was sitting, the president of my company was at the time, I believe, uh, you know, Home Depot at the time, I think was the second largest retailer in the world. And the president of the company was sitting right next to me. And I realized that I had no clue, not a single clue, how to treat him with the appropriate respect. It isn't something we learn in our culture. But when we see other people treating someone with abnormally high respect, what does it do to us? It causes us to think. We start to show some respect, right? No doubt, the people that were traveling between Galilee and Jerusalem had heard stories and rumors about Jesus. And then they see his disciples treating him like he's a king. So let's go to verse 8, Matthew 21 Verses 8 and 9, it says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! This is the way that a king would be paraded into the city. People would go out. They would cover the ground before the king's horse. They would offer honor and praise to the king as he traveled. And this is what's happening to Jesus. But Jesus is on a donkey, not a horse. And interestingly enough, if a king was coming in peace, uh, evidently it would not be unheard of for him to actually come in on a donkey because of what it represented. And Jesus coming into Jerusalem to die and make peace between God and the humans. So that makes sense, really, from a theological perspective. But the crowds are like the disciples, revering Jesus. They're giving him honor. They're crying out, Hosanna, which translated means, save now. They believed at this point that Jesus was the Messiah which was to recognize his kingship. Could have, could have been a reminder to them of when Simon Maccabeus had entered Jerusalem not quite 200 years earlier. Uh, he briefly restored independence. He cleansed the temple. But then ultimately the Maccabean revolt failed. And Israel is now in Jesus' day under the authority of the Roman Empire. And that was the emphasis of the messianic teaching of the time, that Messiah would kick out the Romans and rule over Israel, and that's what they were waiting for. In fact, when they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, their eschatology was not that far off. They recognized that Messiah will rule, on, uh, will rule Jerusalem rather on David's throne forever. They were so tied to their eschatology eschatology that they failed to be open to correction in areas they may have gotten wrong. One of those areas is that he would fulfill, first fulfill the old covenant, the sacrificial and ceremonial laws by, by taking our place on the cross and he'd do that before he would overthrow the world systems. And so when he comes in and he begins calling their current ideologies and systems into question, they reject him as a fraud. And we see in the, in the pericope right, right after this in Matthew that he goes and he throws over the money changers' tables 
right? Chases them out with whips. And what's, what's happening is that the animals needed to be inspected before they could be sacrificed. So when fewer came and you brought an animal like a lamb or a dove and, and then they were inspected, if they had a blemish of some kind, you would have to buy one at an inflated price from the merchants in the temple before you could have your sacrifice. And so there was some collusion going around between temple leaders and so uh, and the merchants. And so the animals that were being sold were usually no better, sometimes worse than the ones that the people were bringing in. And so you basically were being extorted and then everyone else got a cut. Uh, it's kind of like, if you like mafia movies, that's what it was like. Between that and some of his teaching that targeted the Pharisees and Sadducees, the people turned on him. The people turned on him. But at this point, right here on Palm Sunday, the, those who met him and ushered him into Jerusalem on a donkey gave him honor as Messiah and King. Hosanna to the son of David. It, it was a praise and a prayer. Save now, son of David. And what would be especially disturbing to the Pharisees was the fact that they were evoking Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 25 and 26 says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we bless you from the house of the Lord. The, the people are making a messianic confession. It was, a, it was a praise with a plea for salvation. And it points to the second coming. Before he's crucified, he challenges the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he uses the same wording when he tells them this in Matthew 23, just a few chapters later in Matthew, verse 39, where it says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until I say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's go back to Matthew 22, verses 10 and 11. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of, of Galilee. And so imagine the scene here. He rides from Bethphage to Jerusalem with this enormous entourage, right? He comes in on a colt, the baby donkey, and he's being paraded in like he's a king. This has Jerusalem stirred up. It would almost be like rolling into Portland wearing a Make America Great Again hat. Like, you just don't do that. That's, it would upset some people, right? Um, they, they see Jesus being ushered in by the crowds like a king, and they're like, whoa there, Copernicus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are coming into town like this? They don't know Jesus. They ask, who is this? Which, if you don't know, is a reasonable question. Who is this guy that they're praising? The crowds affirm Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And why they don't include the part about him being Messiah who will sit on David's throne, is a little bit of a mystery, but I think I, I, I kind of have it figured out. Je Jesus probably had the notoriety of the, 
people of Jerusalem. They would have heard about Jesus of Nazareth. The stories were going around. So, so they were correct in saying that he's the prophet from Galilee, from Nazareth, rather. And the people probably knew about the miracles and the provocative teaching that he had done. And so maybe that ride into Jerusalem would have been implicit enough to demonstrate that he was claiming to be the one true Messiah as he rides in like a king, right? So that's probably why, why Matthew includes the prophecy from Isaiah, or I mean, I'm sorry, from Zechariah there. Gerard Frederick said, praise and salvation are to be ascribed to Jesus as the Huyas David, or the son of David, has fulfilled the promises of Israel. Jesus is quoted at the end of Luke's account like this. This is the, the same account, but, but written in Luke. It says in Luke 19.39, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones. He had to be identified. His identity had to be shown. And because we don't understand authority very well in our culture, we also don't understand reverence very well. But to be prepared to see Jesus right in, for us to meet him and usher him in as we will, we must learn to practice reverence. Jesus is the eternal king of the universe. If we are to be prepared for our coming Lord, we should prepare like a king is coming. How would we be prepared for a coming king? I think we see a practical picture of that here with the disciples and with the crowds. The first thing we need to do is to embrace a biblical understanding of authority. And we can only do that by studying the Bible. Everyone we read about was prepared in some way. The, the response they had was a reflection of how they were prepared. The disciples treated him like a king. How did their preparation lead them to that? Their attention had constantly been on what? On him. A disciple is a follower of one's teachings and they were following Jesus. The crowds gave him royal honor, but many later would presumably be among those calling for his execution very shortly. Where did their preparation fail them? I think what happened was that they liked the idea of Jesus. They liked the idea. They had prepared for this romanticized version of what the coming Messiah was going to look like as he booted Rome out. And when he didn't meet those expectations, they flipped. The people of the city of Jerusalem, they were immediately stirred up. How had they been prepared for Messiah? Well, their preparation was rooted in skepticism of Jesus. They needed more proof. The Pharisees constantly questioned him and nothing that he proved was ever good enough. Secondly, we need to
practice the kind of reverence that our eternal king deserves and offer that kind of praise now. What makes us think that we could go through the motions now and suddenly have true honor for Jesus when he shows up visibly? I think we're all a little, let's be honest, we're all a little bit guilty, right? Of kind of not focusing on him. We, we need to wait expectantly, but hold our eschatology loosely enough to be corrected in the event that we're wrong about something, which we could be. We, we do our best to understand the scriptures clearly, but when it comes to future prophecy, again, we are interpreting imagery. So we can let prophecy fulfill itself. God is not going to fail to reveal himself to us. We often have a tendency to watch the news as a prophetic fulfillment. And in, in a lot of ways it, it very well may be and can be, but we need to humbly and patiently wait. Because I think Jesus, when he does come back, I think a lot of us aren't going to know how to treat him. That needs to be more our focus rather than checking the boxes and connecting the dots. What were the disciples doing before he rode into Jerusalem? Were they at the city gates just waiting? No. They were busy serving and obeying him. They asked about the future, but they were occupied with honoring him in the present. It's an IBC family. Jesus is coming back. This is true. And we don't make ourselves ready by idly looking up. We do it through obedient service to him, by serving the least of these, by visiting the orphans and widows in their affliction, by loving our enemies and loving our neighbors as ourselves, and by giving him the same reverence now that we will give him when he rides in. I, I saw... I've seen some of these videos of military or police dogs at the headstones of their deceased masters. And these dogs cling to these headstones. And they, if you've never seen a dog pout like that before, it's about the saddest thing you could see. It just breaks your heart. And, and they just lay there with no desire to leave the side of their master. Do we cling to the cross? with that level of loyalty. Imagine what would happen to that dog if the master was resurrected and knelt down to pet him. Imagine the excitement, the kisses, the submission of that dog. Dogs are faithful. Again, be like a dog. Because Jesus is coming back. And when he does, I want to behave rightly. The only way I can do that is to behave rightly now. The only way I can do that is to treat my master rightly here and now. On Friday, we're going to commemorate the death of our Lord. And then on, on Sunday, we'll recall his resurrection. Jesus conquered sin at the cross and death at the grave. How will we approach our master? How will we respond to a functional funeral service for Jesus on Friday? 
How will we respond to the truth on Sunday that he has risen? He is alive. Will we go about our lives as if his presence is inconsequential? Or will we work and wait eagerly for our master? Let us pray. Our holy God, we bow ourselves to our King, Jesus. Thank you that you have chosen us to be here in this place, practicing what we will do for eternity and for giving us this picture of what worship should look like as Jesus rides in, ushered by praising people. Forgive us of our sins, God. We so often treat Jesus irreverently. We don't offer him the honor that he deserves as our holy king. We, we've not loved you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We judge unrighteously and we fail to see our own sinfulness as we look then upon the sins of our neighbors. God, make us holy. Oh, God, make us holy that people might see the majesty of our Lord and the way in which we can conduct our lives. Let our every thought and action be worshipful. Give us the humility to understand who you are and to recognize who we are and to bow in humble submission. We offer ourselves over to you to bring all glory, honor, and reverence to you as we enter this week and we enter our mission field. <coughs> and we ask that you would reveal yourself to us daily that we might be reminded of the great God that we serve. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.